Welcome to the Filament Games Podcast, a show dedicated to game-based learning. Here are your hosts, Brandon Pitzer and Dan Norton. Hello. I haven't even talked to you today about what we're going to talk about today. Right. So I'm going to, t- I'm going to tell you and everyone. I can't wait. All right. So first we're going to talk about what we've been playing because we just got off a holiday break. Yeah. And... We did not spend that time productively. We spent that time playing video games. We did. I did. Yeah, I did. Yeah. And and then we're going to talk to Peter Rambo. I've heard of him. Who's in the studio with us today. The epically named QA associate at Filament Games. I would like to do Peter a favor and, and let's spend almost no time talking about his last name. Because he's so much more than an awesome last name. So what are you been playing, Norton? Several kooky things happened with game playing. I joined a friend's Minecraft server over break, and that server was running literally 175 mods. (laughs) Uh, So a deeply modded, for Minecraft enthusiasts, it was the Feed the Beast Infinity Evolved pack Mm. of Minecraft mods with, I think, two other sort of engineering tweaks done by... Uh, the server moderator. So that was, I think I spent two hours just figuring out how to log in. That was the least fun of the time I spent in there. Mm-hmm. Um, and the personal highlights of this Minecraft adventure is that there were multiple forms of alternate magic being used in this Minecraft server. So there's like witchcraft and like flower magic called Botania. Um, so I did spend two or three days working up to the ability to craft a enchanted flying broom for myself. And so now I can soar across the skies of survival mode Minecraft as if I was in creative mode. On a broom. On a broom. It's very, very cool. Um, (laughs) Other things that are exciting is that my friend who is running the server, her house is like the most intricate, perfectly decorated, weird dollhouse experience of being like, this doesn't even look like Minecraft at this point. It's like, oh no, you were telling me about this. Yeah, it's just incredible. But also the feats of engineering in her house are preposterous. Like she has a fully functioning cake factory (laughs) that uh, there's a cow being forever milked in this sort of horrifying machine in the corner. (laughs) There is small golems that automatically harvest the sugar and the wheat and deposit them into the boxes that feed the pipes that go into the furnace that gets the coal. And, and yeah, so it's this perfect, perfect machine that generates these cakes. And then in turn, those cakes are consumed by magic flowers and turned into mana, which I then steal and put in to use for my own ends because I am lazy. So summarily, it's a beautiful, elaborate, pastry-generating house from which you were thieving. Yes. I have a teleporter, so I can just sort of like... uh, Yeah, the portal gun mod is fully operational, too, so I just Ah. hop through a portal, blip into her house, soak the mana out of the pool, put it into the... Take some of that sweet cake mana. Yeah, sweet cake mana. (laughs) Uh, I make sure that there's more cake forthcoming so that she's not left in the lurch. And then I blip back and do my uh, whatever I was up to. You're like a gentleman thief. I'm a gentleman thief, yes. (laughs) I have also, I have snuck into her house and created more chickens. That's a thing I've done. That was pretty fun. Some chickens got loose in the house. She had a chicken (laughs) containment unit that got a little rogue. That is, uh, I spent a lot of time doing that. Um, The thing I know that we both did, Vermintide. Yeah. I I bashed some rats. Yeah. Bashed a lot of them. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Vermintide is, it's like, 
I guess you describe it as basically left for dead, mm-hmm. uh, but you take the zombies out of it and you add little rat men, mm-hmm. and then you put it into kind of an apocalyptic fantasy scenario, and then you basically have it. Um, but it's class based, and yeah, it's super fun. It's it's basically a beat 'em up and brutally unforgiving difficulty levels uh, yeah. as you ratchet up the skill uh, the skill meter. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that that game was really enjoyable. Um, you know, works really well as a kind of an online co-op experience, I felt, because mm-hmm. it's so team-oriented, which is, you know, very much what Left 4 Dead offers. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I played a lot of that. I also played Ori and the Blind Forest, which is a gorgeous game, platformer in the Metroidvania genre. All right. And the controls were just unbelievably tight. It was just pixel-perfect precision, and I, yeah, that game felt really good to play. You know, that, that's something that, like, I couldn't, I was, after I finished it, it was one of those those games where you're like, you wish there was so much more, and then you start, you know, kind of desperately looking around for similar games, and then you can't even come close to capturing what that game offered you. Right. And, I yeah. might have something for you, actually. Yeah, what you got? My brother turned me on to a game which I bought called Apotheon. Apotheon. I might be pronouncing that wrong. Uh, A-P-O-T-H-E-O-N. I'm almost certain. I'm actually not sure how Metroidvania it is. I'm not sure how much my tools are going to further unlock the environment, but yeah. I think it may even be closer to a Mega Man. I think you may hmm. get a power that helps you defeat another boss in a sequence. But anyway, the thing it's got going for it is it's a platformer exploration game, so that part's similar, but it looks as if it were a piece of Greek pottery yeah, turned I'm, into I'm a living at, game space. Right, yeah, I'm looking at the trailer now. It basically looks like a Grecian urn just in motion. Yes. It's very beautiful. It's incredible. Uh, uh, it's wonderfully, the art is astounding. The style, uh, the animation is great. The writing is good. Uh, and, it, of course, it's chock full of Greek mythology delightfulness. And even as a learning game tie-in, I'm like, I'm interested in the intersection of this game's narrative yeah. And actual Greek mythology and narratives. Like, I'm not sure. Obviously, a lot of the gods and creatures in the game are being pulled straight out of Greek mythology. But I'm curious, and I do not know how much of the story itself. Zeus has decided to abandon the mortal realm and is starting to quarantine the gods away from the mortals. Mm. And I'm like, oh, is that a is that a narrative from actual Greek mythology or not i don't know so it's already spurred some interesting uh interesting questions for me what's interesting to me about it is that it doesn't the the gameplay mechanics themselves are not particularly oriented towards learning Mm -hmm. it's really more just a mechanism to immerse you in this kind of culture and art style and right and mythology yep which is an indirect way towards learning i think but i think it it, you know as as you are demonstrating it was effective right yeah and it's you know certainly i mean we can we can keep on going down this path if you like i feel like that type of strategy in terms of creating a learning game experience that doesn't demand mastery of the objectives like matches nicely with both general interest learning games and then also any anything about about exploring in a informal learning environment right where it's more of getting people interested and engaged and granting them autonomy to explore an object, uh, a pool of knowledge further. Like it's a, I think it's a really compelling and cool strategy. It's difficult to say, like, inject that into a classroom where a teacher mm. needs to know that everyone in the class has had the same common experience and the same learning impact happen to them. Right. Because for, you know, 
some kid might be like, oh my God, I'm going to get every Greek mythology book I can now. This Mm -hmm. is so cool. Or, you know, especially, you know, oh, I didn't know that Greek art looked like this. I'd love to know more about Greek art history. Like those are, there are other kids who'd be like, well, you know, the... The stabbing was pretty good. <laughs> I found that I preferred the long-range weaponry to the short-range weaponry. I didn't. Yeah. I don't remember what those things were called or who it was I was using them on, but these mechanics were sufficient to keep me entertained. Right. So right. you can you could get through this game and learn no things. It's more appropriate to probably like an open-ended kind of learning environment yeah. where it's just like. You know, there's less urgency to it. There's less emphasis on assessment or measurement. Right. And it might just be something where it could pique interest. And Yeah. And, and I think, I think it's important. Yeah, that is that is totally legit, right? Like, yeah. I think we're putting ourselves... Philman's like, definitely made a lot of games that tie mastery to learning objectives in a very deep way. And there's a, there's a lot of strategy and design principles that guide towards that success. But, you know, we would be being very deliberately blind to a lot of the value that games have to offer if we didn't talk about games that can succeed and inspire in less formal, less demanding environments and are more about opening the door for opportunities for further research and, and getting someone passionate about a thing that they may not have known about before. That's that's totally legit and totally a, a cool way to explore learning games as a field. I personally had that experience when I was very young when I played this game called Time Lapse which was a PC game, not widely played. It was very derivative of Myst, <laughs> mm. you know, openly derivative of it. Uh, but it was set on Easter Island, and this setting was so fantastical to my young mind, and then finding out that that's actually a real place, those statues are actually there, mm-hmm. like, that has now cemented in my mind a desire to go to Easter Island in my life at some point. Mm. And it's entirely because I played the game that was set there. I am also interested to find out, though, what Peter's been playing. I'm not. I have no, I have no interest. <laughs> I, wanna, I don't want to know that. All right, Peter, j- just tell me. <laughs> so the only thing I, I, I've been playing over break is I installed Baldur's Gate 1 and 2 on my, mm. on my Android phone. Oh, wow. Uh, sort of to see how that works. And so far, it's going really well. I, I, just, I got a Nexus 6P recently, so it's okay. like running at normal speeds mm-hmm, sure. like from what I remember back when I was actually playing it. Uh-huh. Uh, however long ago that was, 15 years ago maybe at this yeah. point. And it's been perfectly playable on my on my phone. Uh, I had to bump the text up quite a bit, like to <laughs> yeah. basically as big as it can go. For the first hour I was playing, I was like getting a headache from how small the text was until I figured out you could change it. Yeah. <laughs> um, but once I did that, yeah, it's been smooth sailing. Uh, so that like the input and everything is just, it's like smooth in there and well implemented? It's as well implemented as I think you know you can do with a... 15-year-old game translated into touch-based. Put that Uh, on the box. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, it's not, like, it's definitely a game made for a mouse, but... um, Is this emulated, or is this actually released as a thing that you're allowed to, you're supposed to play on purpose? Yeah, somebody redesigned the game for yeah, these, touch these are the enhanced yeah. editions yeah, right yeah the enhanced yeah. editions yeah they put they put that out for Baldur's Gate 1 and 2 and that's you can get that on Steam and iOS and Google Play it's like yeah all over the place yeah yeah I think I paid like $3 each right and man I've like rummaged through my mind for like I played Baldur's Gate 1 certainly mm-hmm are you are you gonna finish those? Is that or is this just like an experiment yeah. to see the the possibility of retro gaming? That's my plan. Uh, I finished one way back when, and mm-hmm. I never got very far into two. So my goal is to play through one and then 
uh, see if I can carry my character over. How they do that? That would be. Mm-hmm. I want to see if that's possible. Are and they? Um, are they brutal? Well, as I said, my characters keep dying. I think sure. if I were playing the right way, yeah. I'd have had to revive them right. many, many times. But uh, so far, I've been just reloading every okay. time that happens. Well, yeah, like quick save in there and stuff? Yeah. Okay. You kind of need that for those CRPGs. Mm-hmm. How many hours are those about? Because I know that like when I try to play a very lengthy game on mobile, I end up like like kind of like a crone by yeah. the end yeah, of it, yeah, just yeah. like horribly disfigured, yep. and I can't move my shoulders anymore. Yeah. I mean, they're probably 60 hours each. Right. At least, yeah. yeah, somewhere around there. So, yeah. All right, so let us know how those went, like sometime <laughs> in June. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> cool. I've said my piece on what I've played over the holiday break, and what I'm curious about right now is to find out a little bit more about Peter and what he does here. Even though he sits, I mean, he sits directly across from me. I could actually kick him as I'm sitting at my desk. But do you? Well, no, I, I, <laughs> I don't. But I've thought of it. It's, I mean, it's really just a reach issue. I like, I would have to. Right, there wouldn't be any force myself. behind it. You're yeah. basically just tapping him. Exactly. And there's yeah. a lot of cables between us. Yeah, you have to navigate yeah. those. Oh, you right. should get those really, really pointy shoes that were popular in Mexican music. No? No one? No one? No one seen Those these? classic Mexican boy they're like, shoes. They're, 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 they're like seven or eight feet long, uh, like curled, pointy shoes. Yeah, Brandon's Googling it so that my... Oh, man. Yeah, I'm not slipping into a seizure here. This is real. This is really real. All right. Botas Picudas Mexicanas. There you go. Right? So you get a pair of those. Also known as Mexican pointy boots. Get those. (laughs) These are the official, like, if you look it up on Wikipedia, it says Mexican pointy boots. There you go. Right? That's what you needed. You get those out, you can tell Peter uh, how it's going to be via the shins whenever you want. They are commonly worn in an ironic and comedic way by males involved in the musical Trival subculture. There you go. There you go. They rose to popularity at the same time as trance music. Imagine. I didn't know. Imagine a club. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> where it's trance music in those Well, they're boots. clearly difficult to, wall to, to wall. move in. Or yeah. certainly, uh, yeah. The dancing involves a lot of nodding. The structural <laughs> problems are, are evident when you see the more extreme versions. But <laughs> I think I'm looking at him. <laughs> in terms of just kicking Peter, I'm telling you, this yeah. is the way. All right. Noted. I'm glad I could help. That's Hopefully it helps our listeners, too. <laughs> if you are looking to kick someone while you're at work, but you don't want to get up, look into these shoes. And maybe you have, you yeah. know, like a nest of cables to navigate, yeah. and you need like a very precise instrument. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You kicking. probably get them on Prime, I bet. <laughs> so back to Peter. <laughs> <laughs> Fair. <laughs> Peter, what do you, what do, you do? Uh, I'm one of the QA associates here at Filament Games, so I spend most of the day looking at our games that are in development and finding what's wrong with them or what doesn't meet the designer's expectations and relaying that to the developers and designers. All right. And how often do you encounter Mexican pointy boots in your day? Uh, It's pretty rare. Okay. Um, (laughs) When it does happen, it's very exciting. (laughs) (laughs) You can't argue with that. Yeah. That is a very straightforward and QA-like description (laughs) of what QA is, which I really like. So, you know, what kind of drew you to the career of QA? What do you you like about it? Well, so I stumbled into it. I didn't really go out of my way to be like, ah, 
QA is the life for me. Okay. I went to college for English, and when I got out, I started working in newspapers as a copy editor. Well, newspapers are are dying industry. So yeah. uh, I heard something about that. Uh, <laughs> the first place I worked at is, has now been absorbed by the other newspaper in town, sort of. Uh, and the second place fired all of the people who worked the machines that make the newspapers in the same mm-hmm. building. The, like the day I started, so uh-huh. that's like wow. Uh, so uh, I was uh-huh. looking for a way to get out of that, and I started doing PC software support over the phone. Okay, because uh, I. I was always a computer guy as well. And so I hated that job. I didn't really like talking to people on the phone. Uh, <laughs> so this must be a pleasure for you. <laughs> I kinda, I kinda, I'm interested in that. Uh, I, I did, uh, a long time ago, I did phone surveys as a job. Mm-hmm. Hey, me too. Oh, really? Was it the UW Survey Center? No, it was uh, a place called Merits Marketing Research. Okay. We, we called people to ask them what they thought of their phone service that they recently had. Mm. I wasn't even selling anything, but... There was a classic cycle in which oftentimes the service that they had just requested mm-hmm. was a privately listed number so that no solicitors would call. And then so I call them unannounced mm-hmm. and this would whip <laughs> them into a rage because <laughs> they had just spent money believing to rid themselves of, of calls from strangers about things altogether. <laughs> so it was a, it was a, it was, it was a difficult job. It was yeah. my first job. All right. I spent my first paycheck ever on a laser pointer. <laughs> <laughs> Just so I can, there we go. That's enough get, of the trip down Gordon's yeah, memory lane. Yeah, uh, but uh, I'm interested, Peter. Like, yeah, what what didn't you like about? Uh, so I enjoyed the, what I was like. Imagine like you. You probably enjoyed the survey part. You didn't like the not survey part. I liked I liked helping people. So the job was like helping people with Word and Excel and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But we got calls for anything wrong with a computer. Right. And so like we would often have to redirect them to other people in their own companies would hire us to do that kind of support for mm-hmm. them. If they had any problems with their actual computers, we had to redirect them to someone else within their own company. Yeah. Usually. Uh-huh. Um, and so like that was like 60 to 70% of the calls we would get was sure. that stuff. And so that was, all, and each company had a different, like we had to look it all up on some kind of internet and like all that redirecting stuff was really frustrating right. to do. But uh-huh. I really, I did actually enjoy like if somebody had a problem with word and how, how like, formatting issues like walking them through that over the phone was actually pretty enjoyable it just wasn't a big part of the job it Mm. felt like um (laughs) anyway so i i wasn't happy with that so i was just looking for jobs as uh, on craigslist to see find something else Uh, i didn't want to go back to the newspapers but i certainly at at that point i probably would have but uh, i saw on craigslist some company was hiring a, a qa person so i applied and i ended up getting the job but as my boss at the time likes to write and has written on my uh, LinkedIn, I didn't interview very well for it because I didn't really understand what a QA person was doing. Uh, now that I've done it for about three years, I have a pretty good idea what it, what it is. <laughs> That's and, good. <laughs> and also, like how my, how uh, working as a copy editor is very similar to working as a QA person. Oh sure. Where, oh sure. I just didn't know that at the time, so I had no way to like tell them that my old job helps me with my new job. But they, I guess they saw through that anyway. Uh, but yeah, like working as a copy editor where you're looking for small errors in text all day and small errors in photos and captions and all these different aspects of a newspaper is very similar to what you're doing as a QA person at a software developer or sure. game developer. Yeah. Was there anything else about like, you know, getting into QA that you didn't anticipate? So like, you you know, you were kind of surprised by the, the transference between copy editing and QA. Was there anything else that was kind of unexpected to you? I think I've been very lucky in that the both the places I work treat QA like real people. Mm. Uh, I certainly read a, a lot of horror stories about QA. The first place I worked was a place called Shendo Studio, and uh, like half the engineers 
or half of our developers came up through QA. Oh, uh, sure. Wow. Like did QA in college while they were getting their computer engineering degree or whatever it is. The graduate with to <laughs> become a developer, even though I was the only QA person there uh, at the first place I worked, uh, I got a lot of help from them and like a lot of respect and a lot of access. And the same has been true at Filament, even though I'm on a bigger QA team. We work really closely with the developers and always feel like our opinions are listened to and valued. And it seems like that's not always the case. Like sometimes QA is siloed in another building or mm. another country and... Um, mm-hmm. Uh, they don't have like the access or the respect that we get here at Filament. Well, when we were very small, there was no such thing as QA. There was there was client QA where they'd tell us, "Hey, this is broken," <laughs> and we'd be like. Darn it. <laughs> that was the cycle. Um, and then, you know, as we got larger, we're like, man, how could we start making things better? Is there, if only there's some way to uh, assure quality uh, on projects. Is there? But no one's ever attempted that as far as we, you know, so. Uh, right. And that's how we invented the practice. That's how we invented quality insurance. <laughs> oh, QA. Right? Yeah. So, that, yeah, that's nice to hear because it, it's it's difficult. QA is a position at Philman and, and lots of places is a very, it's a. It's a tension-producing job, right? Like mm-hmm. your job is to call out that things aren't working the way that people had expected slash hoped. So it's a job that on a day-to-day is, uh, yeah, in tension with other people's expectations. Right. So Your job is to deliver bad news yeah. all day long, every day. Yeah. And I think it's uh, – <laughs> one thing I'm really interested in, Peter, is that, you know, so there's some things that are obviously you can play a thing. It can crash. Everyone's like, oh, I get it. Thank goodness, you know, QA was able to crash that for us and document very carefully. But, like, there's a whole spectrum of talking about a game meeting quality expectations that is more subtle (laughs) and as often can tie into the responsibilities, I think, both of user experience and design. So I was sort of curious about your thoughts about, like, how does that work from your perspective when you when you want to advocate for making a better game and it's not just, oh, by better I mean working? <laughs> yeah, sure. So we don't just go through looking for things that are broken. We look for things that could be better or maybe working exactly as the designer expected, but like as a player it doesn't uh, feel right. So the way to advocate that is like just, I mean, I have a huge background in game. I've been playing games my whole life, so like using examples from other games to say, here's how they did it somewhere else, and I feel like this could be a better way of doing it. Uh, the QA team, like we spend a ton of time with actually playing the games in a way that like I don't th- know that anyone else on the team, except maybe the designer, ever really does. Like they don't, like, obviously we're looking for things that are broken, but we're also playing the game as if we're new to it, and as if we're a player, because we are players, mm-hmm. so... Yeah, I would actually, I would, you know... I would actually sort of interject that you have a distinct advantage over the designer in that the designer is playing the game with their preset expectations of what they believe the game to be, mm-hmm. right? They, they, they've they already discussed and thought about what a game, the game should do and how it should work and their ideas of what fun is. And I know I certainly have occasionally controversial ideas of what counts as fun. <laughs> uh, 
like buying a laser pointer with your entire first paycheck is yeah. maybe not a or just spending your entire holiday break as a gentleman thief flying around on a broom yeah. perhaps Woo! <laughs> yeah uh, I had to place my own severed head on an altar to accomplish that task by the way but anyway yeah that was a it was, yeah there, we can get into that later um, if we want um but you know when you are playing a game I think there's some there's drawbacks for you being sort of like this after the dev team has interacted with the project but I think honestly one of the hugest advantages of QA is they get to play it as a player yeah so that, that's true like the designer if something maybe isn't finished in the game they can be like well this is going to be better after like because in my head it's already better so mm-hmm. uh, I know how it's going to be but like uh, QA deals with the game as it is mm-hmm. when it's given to us uh, which often means it's not done and not fully in, implemented. So, like, we have to uh, obviously get through what we have to get through. And if it's not working as it is, we can see that we don't have the benefit of looking into the future. We deal with what is right in front of us at the moment. Yeah. So I want to jump forward a little bit to uh, because I know you know with our with our audiences, film and games, we have a lot of a lot of people who are aspiring to get into uh, the games world. Mm-hmm. And I would like it if, if we can just kind of pick Peter's brain about, you know, what if, if someone wants to get into QA, if someone wants to, like, kind of put their foot in the door in a QA department, you know, what can they do to prepare? What what kind of skills should they develop? And, and what can they bring to, to the table? Work in newspapers for four years. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and then jump ship. Uh, there you go. <laughs> the Peter Rambo method. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, uh, I'm not entirely sure what you can do to prepare yourself for this, uh, except like there's a ton of independent developers out there that look for testers. So mm-hmm. if you can do some like volunteer testing for other pa- other places, I did that before. Mm. I volunteered to test That's for smart. like some games that are all text based. Forget what they're called. Um, text based adventures. Text-based, yeah, text based adventures. There, there you go. go. I did some of that, and I did some iOS testing uh, okay. for the Humble Bundle oh, way cool. back when. Uh, not iOS, uh, Android testing. So like that's how I had a little bit of experience doing that before I ever got paid to do it. Um, the kind of person who s- tends to excel at this job is like very detail oriented, very like likes things to be consistent in, mm-hmm. and uh, a lot of like just be very good at reading, reading comprehension. Uh, you're going to be dealing with a lot of documents and making sure that a game it's being described in some Jira ticket or whatever. Uh, software development management system companies using you need to be able to read and understand what a designer wants that just about wraps up how much time we have for today no i have more questions i'm sorry man it's i mean Time is what it is. What's your favorite bug? <laughs> like, what's either the mo- I, if we, and you can use favorite as any criteria you want. This is kind of a bug with Apple, but we uh, the last place I worked made war games set in like World War Two, oh. like board game stuff, uh-huh. like historical based around a real battle that actually happened. And uh, we were about ready to release our first game when Apple rejected another game set in the same era, like for uh, using flags like real actual flags to denote which side was which. Oh, no. Uh, and so, like, we removed all references to... Uh, so our, our first game was Battle of the Bulge and was set between the Axis and the Allies, and so we had to refer to them as the Axis and Allies. We couldn't say Germans or any, any like, 
we we removed it all. We didn't know if we were able to use like Nazis or Germans or any any like words that really describe the things any that were actually real. At all. Yeah, any specificities <laughs> we had, and that was a, a very frustrating thing to have to feel like we had to do. Yeah, um, that's ridiculous. Did baddies. it go out that way then? Yeah, that's how it went out. We moved all references to. All right. So just in case anyone wasn't aware that World War II happened <laughs> right. and who was in it. I'm offended. <laughs> I'm offended. That was, that, was that the idea? It was too offensive to suggest that people from different countries fought each other? Well, that, so it like, well, doesn't give any reason for why they do of these course. things. So, right. like, there was no way to know. Uh, but that's the assumption. Right. That's a stunning favorite bug. <laughs> yeah. Not, re- not really a bug, just my favorite thing that's happened. Just a thing. Yeah, yeah. just a crazy thing. <laughs> favorite's probably the wrong word, too. But just right. No, it's good. It's most good. emotional thing. <laughs> yeah. I have one more thing that I need to get out of my system today. Oh, I see. Yeah, all right. All right. That's, that's fair. That's a contronym. Oh! <laughs> it's contronym quarter time! <laughs> Yes! Josh, Josh is like rolling on the ground right now. All right, uh, um, Peter, are you are you familiar with Contronym Corner? No. Okay, so I only recognize one of those words. Okay, uh, well, <laughs> a corner is when you want want. Okay, uh, yeah. Well, let's, let's just get into it, and then uh, you'll you'll see what using, we're talking using about using context clues. Yeah. I'm looking at the list right now, and I'm just like, okay, here's a good one. Oh, okay. All right, here we go. Hold up. Hold up. Hold up. That's two words. Right. Can a contronym be two words? I think so, as a phrase. Because it's a phrase with contradictory meetings. Okay, so um, can there's you... holding up, like, preventing something from happening. That's right. But Oh, and there's holding up, like, supporting something. Yeah. Is that it? That's it. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Not only the fact that it's two words... <laughs> Those don't really seem like the opposite of each other. Bring it up with dailywritingtips.com. <laughs> right? Like, I mean, and there's also a heist, which, you know, is like another another thing that doesn't, it's not the opposite of anything. But like holding up something to like support it, it's hard to be like, but then you, you could also, you can never like hold something up and then have that not be supporting it. They're just, I mean, you could. They're just You're different. talking about a process. They're just different. They're not opposites. I think this. You might be right. Yeah, I, I I would say that this this doesn't pass. This doesn't pass the high muster. standards of contronym corner <laughs> as being a thing that is also the opposite of itself. Let me return to the well then. No, no, I think that's okay. <laughs> All I right. Think, I mean, because contronym corner isn't just about trivia. It's that's about true. It's about <laughs> the dialogue and search for meaning in this tool we have. It's known about as language. Yeah, it's about defining contronym. Yeah, right. What you does know? that mean? Right. So uh, if you're uh, at a a contronym conference, you know later you know, audience, and someone brings up hold up, you're now armed to discuss it with the level of analysis that really only the film and podcast can provide you. That's right. Or maybe the way with words people. Like they probably tend to. They're really good. <sighs> no kidding. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Thanks for listening to the Film and Games Podcast. If you'd like to hear more about games, game-based learning, and well-informed, accurate observations about sports and such, subscribe today on Stitcher or iTunes. 